I'm Megan Murphy, host of The Same Drugs. I am here to have conversations, real, honest, authentic conversations, the kind we aren't supposed to have anymore. I interview anyone who's interesting from left to right to everywhere in between. I work independently in order to have the freedom to say what I believe and to speak to whoever I want. But with independence comes a lot of work and some insecurity. I rely on donors and patrons, so individuals, to support my work so I can continue to do what I do. Please consider becoming a subscriber on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Megan Murphy. Thank you for supporting conversations outside the algorithm. Today on the show, I am speaking with Ian Leslie, who is the author of Conflicted, How Productive Disagreements Lead to Better Outcomes. Hello. Um, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. I really appreciate it. It's very good to be here, Megan. Thank you. So I, uh, the only reason I know who you are <laughs> is because I came across this essay about that you wrote about Paul McCartney. And um, yeah. I loved it. I thought it was so good. And then I also was really excited to learn that you had written this book, which is a really super interesting and very much needed book right now called Conflicted. Um, but I guess before we get into the book, I, I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the Paul McCartney essay. So, sure. like, what was it? I mean, is this a, is Paul McCartney a controversial topic? You know, what led you to feel like, you needed to write an essay in defense of Paul McCartney. Well, I'm, um, as I explain it in, in the piece, I'm a sort of uh, um, a huge fan of Paul McCartney. And I have been ever since I was uh, a young boy, um, a huge Beatles fan generally. And, and Paul McCartney in particular, he was always the one that, that I followed um, and it, it's just struck me often in recent years that uh, when, when people talk about him, at least in, in this country, in, in Britain, maybe not quite the same in, in, in the US, but in Britain, there's a tendency to slightly um, uh, almost dismiss him or to be slightly deprecatory of, of him. Um, you know, he's just not cool, right? He, he's the guy who does the thumbs up and he's done some sort of annoying songs over the years and people go okay yeah he's good in the Beatles but and they talk about him as if he's just some kind of um light entertainment celebrity who's who's sort of still hanging around and to me that's just absolutely absurd and infuriating because he's one of the greatest artists of the last hundred years, right? If if not more, he he, he uh, together with his his friends in the Beatles, but but he specifically reinvented the the rules of music, you know. And I think I think the Beatles were the the biggest thing in in culture in the twentieth century, and and I think he was an absolute kind of central driving force of that. Um, and even post Beatles, I think he's had a Actually, a really interesting, long and varied 
career, which is way underrated. Um, so I just wanted to put the record straight a bit and say, look, guys, we have this immense artist still walking among us. And because he's been among us for, for so long now, we, we, we take him for granted. Don't take him for granted. Don't take what he's done for granted. Right. I totally agree. And like, this actually does relate to your book. One of my most hated arguments of all time, and that I really hate to have this argument, I get so upset that I really just have to check out of the argument entirely, is the argument around whether or not Beatles is the best band that's ever existed in all of history, which obviously, obviously, objectively, it is true that the Beatles are the best band that has ever existed in all of history. And I, I say objectively because objectively they're an incredible band and they've produced more good quality songs and albums than any other band that's ever existed. So I feel like the whole argument is stupid. Has anyone ever tried to engage you in this argument before? Uh, it's, 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 it's a pointless argument. It, the argument is mainly engaged in by people who, who, who just want to be kind of contrarian for the sake of it, which is maybe something we can talk about later because yeah, although I'm a fan of, of critical and independent thinking, I'm not kind of a fan of contrarianism for the sake of it. Um, and it, it, to me, it's just like the wrong place to even start. Um, it's like having a discussion about whether or not Shakespeare was was better than Marlowe or Johnson, you know, and, and it's on a different planet from those guys, you know, he's, and it's the same with the Beatles. It's like a completely whole different level. You can have the discussion about who's the best band of the 60s. That's that's fine. But the Beatles are just on another level. And of all the, you know, the figures in the 20th century, they're probably one of the few figures that we'll still be talking about in, in 300, 400 years. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I think that there's, people who want to have this argument or who want to disagree because they think that the Beatles, they, they think of the Beatles as basic, essentially. They're like, oh, well, everybody likes the Beatles and I'm like a music connoisseur. So obviously I have to yeah. choose a more interesting band, which is, you know, not a good reason to have an yeah. argument or. Well, that's, you know, that's a really interesting, that's a really interesting point. And, and that because they are so ubiquitous and, and they don't give somebody much information about what kind of a person you are, right? It, one of the ways we, we kind of say who we are, what I'm about, how I think about the world is by talking about what music we like, right? We, it's one of the signals we can send. And the Beatles just don't send a strong signal, really. You say the Beatles, I was like, well, yeah, of course the Beatles, whatever. So I do actually understand that the, the, you know, the kind of instinct to say, yeah, Beatles boring. Uh, I actually, I'm really into, you know, Radiohead or whatever it is. You get a bit more, you get a bit more of a, of a signal. Um, so, so that's, that's an, they're almost the kind of victim of, of their own ubiquity and their own success in that sense. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right that there's a lot of, um, you're right. I mean, music is sort of a, an identity thing. It's a way to signal, um, like you say, what kind of person you are. Um, and because everybody, supposedly everybody likes the Beatles, although some people claim to not be like the Beatles. I tend to think that people who claim to not like the Beatles um, are lying or perhaps they just don't like what music sounds like. I would say, <laughs> I would say to them, exactly. I would say to them, relax. I, I'm sure you have a personality. 
It's fine. I'm sure you have a great personality. You don't have to try too hard by telling me you don't like the Beatles. I'm sure you're a very interesting person with very complex music <laughs> exactly, taste. But exactly. please just acknowledge that this is a very good band and that no one has ever achieved what they have. Find, find another route to, to, to self-expression. <laughs> That's my point. <laughs> um, and then my other theory is that maybe people who say that the, the Beatles aren't the best band of all time and maybe they choose, you know, often there's like, Maybe it's the Rolling Stones. And I hate that debate because the Rolling Stones are a really good band. So I don't want to have an argument. That's yeah, exactly. Like, you know, Ben Johnson was a really good playwright. Philip Marlowe, they were good guys. But, you know, guys, we're talking about a different universe. Yeah. And so then and, and some, of, some of the people who say this, I'm just I'm really excited to have this conversation with you because it's honestly one of my pet peeves. I, and then <laughs> I swear. And, I, and again, because I love the Beatles, I'm like a huge fan of the Beatles. Um, and I think Paul McCartney is great. Um, but I think that sometimes people want to have this argument because they actually haven't really listened to the Beatles very much. So when they think of the Beatles, they're like, oh, yeah, like, I want to hold your hand. Like, meh. Yeah, yeah. Which is like anybody dismissing a, a ubiquitous pop star. It's the same as when people say, oh, Taylor Swift, rubbish. Well, you know, listen a little bit harder and, 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 and you know, think a bit more about what you're saying. Is actually, you know, she's it, pop music is that's why that, that period of the Beatles is particularly easy to dismiss because it's just pop music, right? It's just pop. And um, pop music's always easy to dismiss, but pop music is incredibly hard to get to get right and, and to be innovative in um, and to be successful at the same time. Um, so, yeah, I mean, look, pe- people like the Beatles kind of stand in for like what everyone else likes. And if you're really keen on showing that you're not like everyone else, it's it's an easy kind of, you know, play to say, well, I don't like the Beatles. Oh, okay. Well, right. Good you. And if you're going to be honest, then you're going to have to agree with us that the Beatles are the best <laughs> yeah, of all yeah. time. <laughs> you can either be a liar or <laughs> yeah, yeah. you can you're tell wrong, the truth. Those liar. are the options. <laughs> yeah. Or, yeah. <laughs> or just plain wrong. <laughs> so, I mean... One of like obviously one of the reasons that the Beatles lasted for so long and therefore was able to produce so many great albums was because they managed to not break up. I mean, I wonder. I mean, like one of the major issues in bands and bands trying to stay together and bands trying to work together is that there's so much conflict. Um, you know, bands are sort of famous for fighting and infighting and and breaking up and things getting quite toxic. What was it about the Beatles that enabled them to not fall prey to that? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, and uh, in in my book, I, I, I look at the Beatles, I, I look at a few different rock bands and ask that question, right, right? What, what was it that enabled them to st- stay together? Because uh, there's almost there's a, a kind of um, I call it survivor bias. You know, when you only see the bands that, that that you know about, those are the ones that stayed together. Most bands split up before they get even to the stage where they can be bad, right? Um, so, uh, and and most of them split up through because of some kind of some kind of conflict. Um, and a band is a great little microcosm of um society it's like you know it's a little organization it's a little business you get a group of people with different talents different specialisms 
uh, often quite headstrong people. They come together and they try and create something that's larger than the sum of their parts, right? So it's just a really interesting question is, what, what, how do some bands make that work and, and, and why doesn't it work out for, for others? Um, and, yeah, the, the Beatles, and I think the answer to a lot of this is because, you know, unsurprisingly, because this is a theme of my book, is that the, the bands that, that stay together are, are very good at having arguments and, and handling their, their conflict, but don't let the, the arguments and the conflict like take over the band, right? So, so, so the, the disagreements that they have are always in the service of the music and in being a better band. Um, they're, they're never wholly about egos and they never let their egos get out of control. Um, so, and the bands that split up, either it's because there's a clash of egos and that gets in the way of, of the music and, and eventually gets in the way of the, the, the business and, and everything, or they just don't disagree. I mean, there, there was a, a, a comment from a rock critic called Warren Zanes, who's, who's a, who's a, who used to be in a band himself, and he's, he's a great rock writer. And he kind of started me on this line of thinking, because one of the things he said to me was, you know, the bands that stay together, from my experience, are not the ones who are high-fiving each other after every gig and, you know, and giving each other hugs and saying, man, you were so, you were so good tonight. Um, those are the bands that I, when I see that happening, I think, well, you're not going to last long. <laughs> um, the, the bands that do stay together are the bands that actually like tell each other when they're not doing great or when they have a disagreement over music, but it doesn't get really personal and, and toxic. So what the Beatles had was this incredible mix of, they were very close, they really liked each other, loved each other. Uh, they made each other laugh very important we might want to come back to that sense of humor is hugely important to this and that they were able to just openly disagree with with each other um and they had rows you know some like at least three of them walked out at various stages um but but eventually got back together so so they had this kind of like mix of being very close and very kind of open about what they liked and and, and didn't like and that was the thing that that, that made it work Right. And so obviously, you know, a key aim of your book was to discover how to do conflict well and to talk about how to disagree effectively, um, at least so that it doesn't become the, the issue doesn't become worse or things don't become toxic or there is, isn't violence or something like that. But I mean, and, you know, as you just sort of brought up briefly, humor can be really important in that. Um, and you talk about teasing as mm. sort of a good a good thing to use when you're having disagreements or conflicts with others, you know, something that can be kind of effective. Yeah. Um, I, I, we don't want to spend the whole podcast talking about the Beatles, but, but let me just start with, with a, one, one <laughs> Are you more. Sure? Kind of, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm joking. I'm joking. Anecdote about the, the Beatles, which is quite a well-known one, but I, I just think it's, it's a really interesting one. So, so when they, they had their, before they were famous, right, they have an audition at EMI. Um, it's, it's their second audition with a London record label. They come down from Liverpool. The first one, they failed. Uh, Decca rejected them. And and this is really their last chance. You know, if they get rejected again by London record label, I mean, that they, they would have probably split up, right? Um, and George Martin is this, you know, posh English chap called George Martin, 
in in the in the studio uh which was on uh abbey road in london uh it was known as emi studios then it only became abbey road later for for reasons that you can you can guess at um and they auditioned for george martin gave a pretty good account of themselves um and then he invited them up to the his kind of little bit of the the studio the control room for a chat and it was a little bit tense for them they were nervous and tense and george martin gave them quite a talking to um he's very confident obviously he was the guy in charge and he said look you know you, you you chaps seem to have some some talent you've got some some good songs here but you need to do this and this and this. and then after a while of talking he said have you got anything that you would like to to say to me and there was a sort of beat of silence and george harrison the youngest member of the group says um well i don't like your tie for a start and everybody breaks about uh, out laughing, right? And there's, I, I, there must have been like a little fraction of a second, I imagine, where everybody's kind of saying, "Oh my god, what is?" And then because George Martin laughs and and they laugh, it, it just the, the the tension just sort of evaporates fr- from the room. And it's really interesting because there's a whole kind of class thing going <laughs> going on here. Maybe you have to be British to 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 understand. But George Harrison was essentially teasing. George Martin he, and in a way he was auditioning George Martin because I, I, I say it was their, their last chance but the Beatles were never they were they were always certain that they would succeed somehow and they were certainly convinced that they were they were exceptionally talented right right from the beginning and there was a little touch of arrogance about them and I think they were kind of saying can this guy take a joke because if he can't take a little bit of a teasing joke then we don't want to work with him. As it turned out, he could, and he did, and that was a kind of big part of their their relationship for for years to come. Um, and yeah, I just thought it was interesting because I I think um, humor and and teasing in particular is a really important and useful way to deal with tense conversations and with with disagreements. Um, it, it's a kind of way of giving somebody feedback on themselves. Which is not a kind of direct, aggressive way. It's a kind of subtle way, and done right, it's it's affectionate and quite and 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 sort of positive and playful rather than you know passive aggressive, right? Um, and I was thinking, it's, I love to be teased, right? Not everyone does, but, but I, I, I do I, too. I, mean, I always tell like, people right? that, yeah, and like sometimes I think it's strange when somebody starts teasing me. You know, in a relationship, whether it's a new person, friend at work, or uh you know just becoming new friends with somebody whatever it is it's like a sign that we've crossed some threshold in in the relationship we're like good you're taking the piss out of me as we as we say in britain that's great i love that so you yeah you feel the same way yeah yeah i like it too and sometimes i'll describe it i'll say like i kind i like being picked on but it's not you know <laughs> not mean picked on but i just find it very amusing when people kind of make fun of me and pick on me and i kind of like to make fun of and pick on other people it's like a good way to build i don't know repertoire I guess. a friend a friend of mine who's actually a friend of a friend but he kind of picked up on this characteristic of mine of liking to be teased and he said you love to be flayed don't you ian love to be flayed <laughs> and he's like, you know, under the right circumstances um <laughs> I love to be yeah flayed. of course 
So why is it that so many people, I mean, as you, you discuss in your book, the fact that conflict is actually good for relationships, but a lot of people don't see it that way. A lot of people avoid conflict and a lot of people fear conflict. Why is that? Well, and, and that's really what you just said is, is kind of my, was my starting point for, for the book. My starting kind of question was, um, why, why do we fear it? And, and, and does our fear, it is, I, I sort of sense that our fear makes us bad at it, right? Because we get stressed and, and fearful in, in disagreement, we either get really aggressive and unpleasant quite quickly, or more often we just avoid it altogether, which creates huge problems of its own. So my my kind of mission for the book is to help people feel more comfortable with disagreement, to give them a kind of set of tools, a framework for how to think about it. That means that they're able to do it. So why do we feel I mean, I, I think we've we can't we find it hard to separate an, a, a sort of disagreement from a personal attack. I'm afraid that's probably just baked into our evolutionary psychology. Right. We We, we didn't kind of evolve in, in, in groups of humans that were having um, kind of uh, democratic disagreements about the, the right way forward, right? We, we have evolved both, you know, biologically and, and, and culturally in communities where you basically did what you were told um or or you risk you know some being hit right um or you 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 just followed habit and and tradition you did whatever the group was it's actually kind of broadly speaking it's a relatively recent development where we're now in these groups where everybody has a point of view and everybody's view is legitimate and you can all pitch in and 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 kind of speak your mind and so on um and so in in sort of the broad span of human history it's an incredibly fast whiplash move we're making into this world where people are disagreeing with us all the time and it's now being kind of amplified and weaponized by social media so we can see loads of people disagreeing about everything all the time every second and we can kind of throw in our own point of view at the the click of a button and i just don't think that we are remotely prepared for it um nobody trains you how to disagree well you know nobody takes you aside and says look you, you need to get better at this is quite hard you know it's quite hard to disagree without getting fearful or without annoying the other person, offending the other person, um, without it turning into a kind of futile battle of wills. You can do it, but it just takes a little bit of thought. Um, That's basically what the book is about. Mm -hmm. And like, what is it specifically that people fear? I mean, there's, there's so many different kinds of disagreements, so it's hard to talk about it generally, but you can probably get at some of the specifics, but you know, there's, the kinds of disagreements that happen in friendships or in intimate partnerships and things like that. And, you know, a lot of people will go through years and years and years of uh, a friendship or, or a relationship with a family member or with a partner, avoiding having discussions about difficult things or bringing up the things that they're, you know, I don't know if it, it would just be a disagreement, but, you know, addressing the conflict essentially, which doesn't help. It actually makes things worse. 
But what is it in the people in those situations, people who kind of avoid conflicts and closer relationships, what is it that they're afraid will happen if they bring up the issue or the conflict? I, I think people are afraid of two things, two, two, two kind of big things. One is that the the disagreement or the conflict will damage the relationship, will, will damage a relationship that they value in some way. Um, and the second thing is it will make them look bad. You know, or they, they risk losing the argument, losing face uh, or, 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 or feeling hurt. Um, and both those things are unwelcome. Both those things are just stressful to, to, to think about, right? Whether you're in, whether it's your relationship with your partner at home or uh, a conversation at work, um, in, in neither case do you want to damage the relationship that, that you have with the people. And in neither case do you want to, do you want to look bad, right? Even, even in an intimate relationship, there's always no element of like, you know, I, I still want to, I still want to look good. I want to feel respected. Um, and I, I mean, basically I'm saying you have to get over both those things. Um, because the problem is if, if, if the, you therefore avoid disagreement, then, then both or either of those things can happen. In fact, particularly on the relationship side, your relationship will be corroded. It'll be like eaten away, you know, by like by acid, uh, the acid of passive aggression. In that in that case, um, uh, that, that, that I spend some time in the book talking about this relationship science and and psychologists who study couples, and in that field, there used to be an assumption that conflict and argument is basically something to be avoided because the, the couples that split up are on un, unhappy have a lot of arguments and they're now kind of change, then changing their mind about that generally because there's been some really interesting research which casts new light on that and it says okay yeah sure couples who argue all the time will split up but that doesn't mean that arguing is bad and actually when they look at couples uh, they kind of study couples having difficult conversations in the lab and then they track their relationship o- over the years to come. And the couples who avoid conflict and don't get into heated arguments, even when they're discuss- discuss- discussing an issue which, on which they disagree, who are always polite and, and reasonable, um, are not actually the ones who, who turn out to be satisfied and happy uh, and, and who stayed together. Um, they're the ones who, who who tend to be, you know, tend to split up or, or not be happy in the relationship, you know, a year or two down the line. The ones who have really strong, healthy and happy, vital relationships are the ones who actually have it out. You know, <laughs> the ones who are actually quite relaxed about having arguments, who don't see it as a threat to, to the relationship. It's just something they do. Right. And. You know couples like that. We all know couples like that, and perhaps we've, you know, some of us have been in in, in relationships like that where it, it, it's it's it can be, get quite heated and it can get quite quite passionate, and it's not always super pleasant, but it's just part of the rhythm of the relationship, and it it, it doesn't signal some sort of terrible flaw. Quite the opposite. It means that people are showing each other how they think and how they feel. Because there's a thing about an argument is it really exposes, it's a sort of little lifting of, of a veil. It's, it, we, we expose a little bit of our soul in, in, in an argument. You really find out about what your partner cares about, what, they, what your partner really thinks 
when you have a row. And so it ends up bringing you closer rather than driving you apart. Right. And I mean, obviously, one of the things that you want in a relationship is to be heard and understood. And I think that if you really want to be heard and understood, you're going to be expressing your feelings and opinions. And those, you know, that's inevitably going to lead, I would think, to some kind of conflict sometimes. Yeah, exactly. And and vice versa, you want, or at least you need to understand your partner's feelings, their, their true feelings and their true points of view, um, which it's much harder to get if you never disagree. You know, it, 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 disagreement and argument have that habit of just kind of like, you know, you're pulling the that information about what you, what you, what do you really feel about this? You get that in a disagreement, which you don't necessarily just get if you ask them, you know, what do you think? Just tell me. Um, so, yeah, it, it just kind of, it brings it brings people like it gives people new information about their partner even a partner they've been with for, for 20 years you have around you can learn something new about them mm-hmm. it's interesting because i actually think that even like uh, different approaches to conflict or different relationships to conflict can be a conflict in a relationship you know like i've been in relationships where Like I'm somebody who is pretty comfortable with disagreement and conflict. I do it all the time. It doesn't really upset me or bother me or stress me out. I mean, it can if it's something very personal, obviously. Um, But in general, I don't, I'm not bothered by arguments. Um, But there are a lot of people who really are, who feel really, really uncomfortable with arguments and with conflict. And I, I suspect that's because maybe they, grew up in a household where that wasn't the norm. So they view it as something negative. Yeah. Yeah. And they, 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 they view it as, as a sign that there's something wrong here. Um, That that, this is a kind of um, some sort of dramatic threat to, to the fabric of, of our relationship. Whereas, somebody like you is like no this is part of a relationship you know this is how we this is how we learn about each other this is how we get to know each other it's just one of the modes of 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 intercourse and conversation that that we have it's not a threat um and you know what you've just talked about is really the essence of, of, of the kind of approach that i want everyone to take in every like you know in every context you know not just relationships is don't see disagreement and, and, and argument as as threats, as as kind of inherently disruptive and something to, to stay away for, from and, and stressful, but, but just come to see it as one of the essential uh, parts of, of human relationships. But I mean, right. the, the, but to go back to what I was saying earlier, it, it, it really does help if, if you've given a bit of thought to how to do it well. You know, because if you don't know how to do it well, you try it and it really goes badly. <laughs> and then you think, well, I'm never having a, an open disagreement with that person or, or, or with anyone ever again, because that, that was a that was a horrible row. Um, so it, it will help if, if you kind of like have some guardrails and you kind of know how, how to handle it and how to approach it. Uh, and then hopefully you'll have much more creative and productive and um, kind of more intimate disagreements. Right. And so what are some good ways to engage in conflict and what are some things to avoid? 
Well, one of the mistakes that people make a lot, I think, is getting to the, the disagreement too quickly before you've kind of made a real connection. Um, now, this could be you could be talking to someone you've never met on, on you know, on social media. Or you could be talking to someone you've, you've known for a long time or anywhere in between. But but either way, when you have a, a, a some sort of conflict or disagreement that you know you want to, to get to, rather than getting straight to it, just kind of make a connection, stabilize the encounter, stabilize the relationship and, and then move to, to the disagreement. So it's a kind of sequencing thing. Um, so in the book, I, I, I learned a lot from in, in my research from people who have really tough conversations for a living. Right. So um, I talked to people who interrogate terrorists or I talked to hostage negotiators and addiction therapists and diplomats and lots of people who kind of just have an incredibly deep, intuitive feel for, for how to do this. And I kind of drew these lessons from from them. And one of the, the common themes is is to, to to strike up some sort of a rapport with the person you're talking to before you get into it. And and one of the common mistakes they say that people make is is doing the opposite. So interrogators, really good interrogators, because actually there's a lot of bad interrogators, but the really good ones do not walk into the room with, with a suspect and say, okay, listen, Sonny, you need to tell me what you know, otherwise we're going to throw the book at you, whatever it is. Um, they, because that, that's the thing that is guaranteed to shut the person up, right? If they were ever even vaguely tempted to talk to you, then you telling them that you, you need to talk to me is the thing that just <laughs> makes them dig in and entrench and, and just kind of like clamp, clam up. Um, we just have this instinctive, like perverse reaction to anyone trying to tell us what to do, right? So you're basically, you're doing the job for them by, 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 by trying to, get to it like that instead they sit down with them and they try and establish a, a, a rapport with them relationship with them so that they'll just say and they're, they're genuine when they say they're genuinely curious people they'll say look um i, I just want to find out what how you ended up here like wh what's what's your story and the these hardened trained terrorists just open up <laughs> because <laughs> they're not expecting it and they just sort of gush and all the information comes out with 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 the story um hostage negotiators similarly they they don't pick up the phone to to the hostage uh taker uh or, or person in crisis often they're just dealing with somebody who's who's in cr a crisis of some kind um they don't say okay so um hi okay how are we going to resolve this situation so that nobody gets hurt they do that later. The, the, what they pick, they pick up the phone and, and the first few minutes they spend saying things like, hey, look, um, just want to say, I can see that you're handling this situation really well. Um, you've got everything under control and, and I like the way you've, you've dealt with my colleagues here. And, and I just want to say on behalf of us, you know, we appreciate the, the, the way you've been handling this, whatever it is. But, but they just calm those people down they lower the the defenses that they have you know really up, up high put them at ease make them feel good about themselves 
And a lot of uh, uh, succeeding in a disagreement is making sure, doing your best to make the other pe- person feel secure about themselves. Because that fear and hostility or, or sort of stress, rather, that fear and stress that you have about the disagreement, they're feeling it too. And so the way to reduce the, the level of, 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 of stress for both of you is to work on reducing theirs because then they will calm down and that will calm you down and you'll be, you know, you'll have a better disagreement. So these guys, these hostage negotiators and interrogators do that, you know, very, they, they focus on that like a laser beam, right? Make the other person feel a little bit more relaxed, lower, lower their, their defenses so that we can have a more equal kind of level, calmer conversation. And those are extreme situations, right? We're not all kind of walking and talking to terrorists, but the same principle applies in any tough conversation just try and 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 make the other person you know just try and make them chill a little bit um and use whatever you know not tricks because it shouldn't be a trick you should mean it but but whatever you can do to to make them feel like they're being respected and they're being listened to and they're being heard and then get to the really tough part of the conversation it's much more likely to go well right and i mean You write about how, for example, people will not react well if they sense that they're being condescended to, um, never mind if people are feeling, you know, like power is so much yes. at, at, at stake here, right? You know, the way yeah. that people will react to you has so much to do with whether or not they feel weak, as you wrote about, or, you know, if they feel bullied, if they feel condescended to, if they feel dominated, um, how does that, like, can you talk a little bit more about how that issue of power factors in? Hugely. Um, so if we go back to what we were saying and the sense that people, people treat disagreement, perhaps because we are evolutionary, you know, we're programmed to do so, but you know, you don't, you could just see, you know, with your own eyes, what what happens. People dis- treat disagreement as as a threat to themselves, right? So, what we're trying to do, if we want a productive disagreement, is we're trying to send signals that that there is no threat to you here. Okay, we we, we can have a disagreement, and uh, and we're not going to we're not going to get into that. Um, I've now forgotten your question. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, it was sort of a meandering question, but I was interested in the, the, I mean, I like, so you wrote about the 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 David Koresh, Koresh situation. And I remember one, one aspect of what you wrote about there is that the woman who, one of the women who was on the phone talking to the FBI sort of sensed that she was being condescended to, and that led her to shut down essentially. And I think maybe a lot of people don't realize that, when they're engaging with somebody in that kind of high conflict situation or in any, probably in any conflict situation, in any disagreement that the, you know, if somebody feels condescended to, if they feel that you're not really taking them seriously, if they sort of sense that you think that you're right and you think that, and and they think that you're wrong or they think that you're stupid or ignorant or whatever, then, you know, that, that conversation really isn't going to go anywhere productive. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. And and people, we, we have this very, very deep-rooted aversion to being pushed around, right? Um, and psychologists talk about reactance 
reactance is what happens uh, when when somebody feels like the other person is making an attempt to dominate them, however subtle, however reasonable that other person might 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 be might be sounding, uh, the person on the other side might think this person is trying to dominate me in 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 some way, and then they push back and they they'll use all the means at their disposal, right? So they'll be irrational, they'll be emotional, they'll be angry, they'll be rude, whatever it takes, because they're, they're, they'll push back. Um, yeah, and in in the case of Waco, the the the, the Waco, the, the the FBI agents were on their terms. They thought they were being super reasonable and just kind of explaining uh, the the situation to these guys. But the other guys, the 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 guys who were part of the cult, um, even the kind of more in, in inverted commas reasonable ones felt like they were being talked down to and, and condescended. And frankly, they were because the FBI guys thought they were nutters. Right. And that showed. That's the other thing. You can't fake this. You, you, you either are going to respect and like your, your interlocutor or you're not. If, if you don't and you can't find a way to make yourself respect and like them, it's very unlikely to, to be a good disagreement because other people can always pick up on that, even when you're trying to be kind of all cool and, and, and impassive. Um, and that meant that that, that that kind of conversation went went disastrously badly. Um, so, yeah, the, the, the way that disagreements go wrong is that they turn into battles for control. They turn into a, a tug of war, and you've got to avoid that. One of the other um, kind of groups of experts that I talked to are addiction therapists. Um, and, again, they, they, they kind of change the way they – approach the field uh, it really in the last couple of decades they used to the the conventional method of, of of addiction therapy used to be to tell the addict you just need to stop drinking <laughs> i mean i i'm i'm, I'm crudely summarizing it but basically it was like you, you had to kind of break the resistance of the addict by telling them by showing them how serious their problem was how it was affecting their life how it was damaging the life of the people around them and you just kept repeating that until, you know, you broke their will some, effectively. And it took them a, a while to, to realize that this is incredibly counterproductive, that actually they were just reinforcing the addict's will to, to, to go on. Because every time the, this, the expert therapist said, you know, you need to stop doing this, um, the, the, the addict thought, screw you. Don't try and tell me what to do. You didn't know nothing about my life. I'm gonna. I want to drink more. Here's all the reasons I, that I like drinking. Here's all the reasons it's it's totally fine. And it, although you know th- those situations are pretty can be pretty awful and serious, we all recognise that we've all been in that situation, right? We're, whether or not we're we're addicts, where we know that something is that we're doing or is not particularly good, and Left to our own devices, we might work out a way of not doing it. But when someone comes along and says, you've got to stop doing this, you suddenly think, hey, no, I like doing this. This is a really good thing to do. You know, I've got lots of good reasons to, to do this stupid thing that I, that I don't think I should be doing. Um, so so in, in addiction therapy, they, they, they just learned that instead of going in like head, you know, directly, you, you, you have to just say a bit like the interrogators, just tell me what's going on let me help me understand why you're drinking help me understand if it's why it's a problem if it's a problem presume you think it's a problem because you're you're here um 
and and they just listen and they they build a relationship of trust and and they guide but they don't push um and and it, and the, they they kind of create the conditions for for the addict to work it out for themselves and to come to their own conclusions and then they're much more likely to follow through and change their behavior um and Okay, so that approach is not suitable for every disagreement, but but there's a little bit of truth that you can apply to any any disagreement, which is you know if that person is is not engaging in the disagreement productively, it's probably because they feel like you're trying to push them around a bit or you're you're, you're trying to dominate them. So help them feel that you're you're on a level playing field, and that might mean kind of showing that you are listening, taking on board what they're saying, really taking on board, not just going, uh-huh, uh-huh, but saying, oh, I hadn't thought about it like that before, you know, and and and, and even if you don't have to agree with them, obviously, because that would kind of ruin the point of having a disagreement, but you, you can have your perspective changed a little bit by what they say, or you can find a little bit of truth in what they're saying and say, well, you know, actually, I agree with what you're saying there. I don't agree with this, but but I do think you have a good point there. Even things like that are going to really smooth the the the, the path of, of the disagreement and help it be creative and productive and, and and healthy. Right, and I mean, in a lot of cases, I think that that should be kind of a legitimate approach. Like the idea that you might change your mind, actually, like the idea that maybe your perspective might be flawed or you're not totally right. There's some things that I'm pretty sure I'm totally right about and I'm not going to change my mind about. But there's a lot of things, like most things, I don't know everything about. So yeah. <laughs> I'm open to the idea that I could be wrong. Um, but I, I get the feeling that a lot of people are not open to the idea that they could be wrong. They really don't like the idea that, you know, people are not comfortable with the fact that they might be wrong. No, we love to be right. And we love to be seen to be right. And again, it comes back to the, the power thing, right? That that being right is is a kind of, you know, being the the the, the dominant person in, in the conversation is the person that says, I'm right. Uh, admitting that you're wrong, shifting your, your position is often seen as a, a sign of weakness, right? Um now it shouldn't be and it and it needn't be, but one of the things that makes disagreements kind of futile and, and kind of pointless is people sticking to their first position, no matter what the other person says, I've, I've laid out my position. I'm not going to shift from that. Not one inch. So you can throw things at me, you know, all these facts and data and reasons and experiences and whatever it is. And I'm still going to come back to where I am because now my identity is attached to this position that I laid out in the first sentence or the first tweet, whatever it is. Um, and if I move one millimeter from that, um, maybe you'll think I'm, I'm a weak person. I'm not. I'm a strong person. So, <laughs> again, you have to find a way to say, look, I, I know you're a strong person. You know, I have to say it like explicitly, but, <laughs> but you, you, you know, show, show them some respect and maybe they can go back, back down and, and model it yourself. You know, show that, you know, you have been you can be persuaded or, or you know, that, that you do think you're wrong. Uh, sometimes um yeah i just think it's a, like we worry too much about being right it is important that we are right right it's, it's important that we as a, a group of two or more people whatever it is get to the truth right that that's a great thing if we can um or we get to some more interesting place than we've been whatever it is 
But it's actually not important whether you are right or not. It doesn't. It shouldn't actually matter to you that much. It should matter that you're gonna you're gonna learn something. You're gonna get some deeper insight from from the conversation. Being right in the right. first place that's not that that's not that valuable. That's no big deal. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, the important thing is the seeking of truth, or or maybe learning something, or finding a better way, or something like that. Yeah. I mean, you you brought up um, the example of anti-vaxxers which i actually <laughs> i have one small criticism of your book <laughs> oh, which is that i felt that like um so when you were talking about the vax debate i'm not an anti-vaxxer um and i really actually have never followed that debate that closely it's not something i've even thought about all that much I, it's not such a heated debate in canada as it is in the u.s um but I I do know some people now who I would probably be called anti-vaxxers, but I think their perspectives are more complex. And that sort of opened me up to the idea that there this isn't like a, a binary debate. And also the idea that people who are labeled as anti-vax are not really, they're not just ignorant anti-science people. And I think that's how, you know, the... I, I hate talking about this this debate and many debates in these kinds of binary terms again, but the people who are pro-vaccination versus the people who are skeptical of vaccinations or whatever you want to say, they approach the other side as though they're stupid, ignorant yahoos who are um, putting everyone's health at risk. Um, and I guess I'm not saying that's exactly what you did, but I did read a bit of condescension in your approach to ah, that. I and I was like, oh, he's yeah. not taking his own advice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I plead guilty to that. Yeah, I think that's the, I think you'll, I'll go back and read it, but I'm sure you're right. Um, <laughs> I, and actually, and my thinking has on that specific issue has, has developed because, you know, there's so many conversations about it at, at the moment as the vaccine program yeah. rolls out. And, um, yeah, basically, I think you're right. Anti-vax is just not a helpful label, actually. Um, it covers a variety of different attitudes, you know, scepticism, fear, um, questioning. Yeah, it should be fine to say, does this... And, and actually, the more you kind of insist that it's not fine, that you're some sort of, like, terrible, like, you know, Holocaust denier or something, or climate change denier, if if you're, uh, you know, you're an anti-vax, but, oh, my God the more you're just basically kind of pushing people away because it, again, it, 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 you're just turning it into a, a, a power battle where it's like, Oh, I'm, I'm the person talking down to you. And when somebody feels talked, talked down to, they don't funnily enough, they don't go, Oh, you're, you're right. What a great point. No, they go screw what you. What an idiot I am. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. They very rarely go, Oh, what an idiot. And why didn't I think of that? You clever person. Yeah. It's interesting. And just to broaden it out for a minute, like, so many of the bad uh, sort of disagreements and bad discourse in, in our society is basically educated people talking down to everyone else and insisting on on, on finding ways to, to signal how clever they are or how knowledgeable they are. Um, and we've, you know, people like me, basically, and we found another one with anti-vax. We can go, oh, my God, you ignorant people. Um, and so I think people like us, people with like degrees and, you know, posh jobs, writing, journal, you know, journalism, writing books, whatever, podcasting, whatever it is, 
we should just chill a little bit and 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 kind of go okay well that's interesting so tell me about what what how you feel about vaccines and 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 you know if i have anything to add i'll help hopefully you know i'll add it but but i i'm interested we should be interested in in that subject there's very few you know it's probably a very small hardcore who are like ideologically anti-vaccination and and are like fiercely ardently now they're probably very vocal so we see them a lot but i would i would guess that you know 80 90 of the people who are resistant taking the vaccine are actually not part of that minority they're they're, they're just people who are who are doubtful for whatever reason. Yeah, I think so too. And I think, you know, the reason that I started sort of thinking about this differently was because of the, the COVID thing and the way that people were talking about that vaccine and it being rushed and so on and so forth. So I sort of started to listen to some alternate viewpoints and I was like, Oh, okay. Like, I, it's not unreasonable. Like I totally get why you're skeptical. And in general, I think that it's good to be skeptical of big pharma, the government, the powers that, I mean, we should be asking questions and thinking critically, you know, it's not as simple as pro science versus anti-science. It's seems to me that it's more like you guys are reading different science. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it's it's the, the the some of the main vaccines, you know, the Pfizer vaccine or the Moderna vaccine, they've never been they've never used this technology before, right? This is a first. Yeah. Now, I have to think it's bloody amazing, and 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 all the evidence suggests that that they're totally fine. But I do understand people going. Well, okay. Well, this has never been done before, and now everyone's got to take it. I, I would l- at least like a little bit more. You know, I'd like to find out more about this. I think it's you know a reasonable doubt and a reasonable question to have, and people should engage with it on that basis. Not, oh, you vaccine denier. You know, shut up. Because, uh, like yeah. you say, I mean, it's just gonna. It just it creates the problem that you're you're trying to solve. It's it's like so many approaches to disagreement it's it's counterproductive right and of course i mean it seems as though that's a major problem in our culture you may have noticed wherein debates become very polarized and one side is very hyperbolic about the other sides not just their wrongness but how bad they are so, you know, yeah. in America, it would have been, you know, people who supported Biden over people who supported Trump, maybe, or Hillary versus Trump. And um, there's very little willingness. There's all sorts of other debates that are equally as polarized. But, um, you know, it's they're never it's it's never going to be a, a productive or a good conversation and you're never going to change anyone's mind if you approach people like that you know if you go up to somebody who voted for Trump and you tell them that they're a nazi and a fascist and they're racist and bad that's not going to convince them to stop supporting Trump if that's what no. your aim is and it's so strange to me that people still like continue to use this approach and they double down on this approach and they refuse, you know, you suggest I've done this many times. I'm like, you know, you should try to have a conversation with these people that you think are so bad and awful and maybe try to understand where they're coming from. And they're 
Yeah. No, I'm and, just and, gonna and tell it, them that they're bad. That'll do it. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. You know, number one is it's the it's the it's the humane thing to do to listen to 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 people you know full stop um but number two even if you just want to approach it in a purely tactical machiavellian way you're going to be better at converting or you know neutralizing that that point of view if you understand it better right so at least get to know the other side's argument just to defeat it right or get to know the other side's argument because you know there might be some scintillas of, of truth inside it whatever but really there's no excuse for not trying to understand and and for dismissing it um and yeah as you say the 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 left or the liberal left whatever we want to call it of which i count myself a part constantly make this mistake over and over again turn every issue into this kind of uh, hey what we need to do with climate change or 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 or, or racism or, or whatever it is is we need to turn it into a shouty hysterical uh, you know kind of fight um and but just by doing that will will somehow people will just come around and, and win the battle and of course it just it you just create more ardent opposition to to whatever your your position is um now i i actually think this comes down ultimately to what we've been talking about throughout which is um people's discomfort with disagreement it's it's another way. So this, you can avoid disagreement by just leaving the room, or by by just staying silent, by just mm-hmm. saying, or by just saying, yeah, I I, I agree with you, sure, <laughs> right. Which is that's often how I deal with with you know as a conflict averse person myself. I often kind of find myself going, yeah, 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 okay, okay, even when I don't mean it. But there's another way to to avoid disagreement. And that's just to shout at the person or, or to rule them out of bounds or, or to, to say that they are evil and, you know, just sh- shouldn't be in- engaged with. That also gets me out of the the stress and the discomfort and the complication of, of a disagreement. And it's equally, it's cowardly. It's equally cowardly, you know, and, and ultimately uh, alienating. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually. Um, I was interested in your discussion of, I mean, and I've observed this to be true, but it's it's still confusing to me. And I'm, I'm sure that I do it myself, but this, this tendency of people to um, not just cling to their preferred opinions, no matter what, even if they're confronted with facts that um, might challenge the validity or righteousness of that opinion. You know, people will even interpret facts to suit their bias. So people will read facts differently based on what opinion they want to have. (laughs) How does that work? Oh, I mean, it's we we totally start with the opinion and and then we work everything back to that. We we are inveterately post-rationalizing creatures um we 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 have a, a, a an opinion a theory a kind of way of seeing the world and then everything just gets fed fed through that um so you know that's just that's just the way we are and then we have to correct for it and one of the best ways we can correct for it is having a good disagreement you know these these we actually think better when we're talking to other people with 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 different 
views from us. Um, and our, our biases, our tendency to, to interpret everything according to what we want, they, they really kick in those biases when we're kind of reading or thinking by ourselves. Um, or to only talking to people with whom we agree, right? And then we all kind of reinforce each other's biases. So the, those biases effectively make us stupid. And the way, so the way, the way to avoid stupidity is to have better, more and better disagreements. Right. And did you find that there was any kind of evolutionary basis for this? I mean, why, why would this be? even exist as a, a human um, habit, I suppose, you know, is there an evolutionary basis for confirmation bias, essentially? Yeah, it's a good question. I, the, 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 the one way in which it is helpful is if you're thinking about uh, cognition and, and reasoning as gr a group activity, not just something you, you you do alone, right? So so if you're in a group and you all have different points of view and you're all kind of putting them forward and you're trying to and everybody's trying to everybody's trying to win, so they're kind of knocking out the other arguments at the same time as putting forward their own view. Then, if the group has a common objective. This is where things often go awry and fall down. That actually will make the discussion that that'll get you to to a better decision or or to or to truth a lot a lot faster, right? Because you're throwing out all these points of view. It's like natural selection itself. You're throwing out lots of points of view, and the strongest ones will survive. The weakest ones will will get mown down by by someone else in the group. Now that that process is going to go better if each person in the group is really kind of using their confirmation bias and just thinking of all the reasons that they're right and why the other person's wrong, which is a really bad idea when it's just you, right? Or when you're not <laughs> with whom you disagree, because that's going to basically end up in an alternative reality. But but if you're, if you're in a group where everybody's doing the same thing and you're all kind of doing it together, it actually strengthens the, the, the group discussion. So actually, I think that's it. I mean, confirmation bias is is like we think it's this terrible flaw in, in human reason because we think about individuals doing it. But if you look at it in the context of, of a group, it can actually make the group smarter as long as the group is uh, everybody in the group is, uh, you know, has a different view and everybody's kind of bringing that to the table. Mm. One of the things that I thought was interesting that you brought up is that there's like, major cultural differences in terms of people's approach to conflict, how comfortable they feel with conflict, um, you know, well, how they engage in negotiation, for example. Um, what did you find there in terms of your research, in terms of, you know, the different ways that maybe different countries, people from different countries, different cultures approach conflict? Well, I mean, we in the in the, in Western democracies tend to be a bit more comfortable with with disagreement. I mean, as I say, I still think we're very uncomfortable with it in lots of ways, but we at least are more comfortable with it than than uh, people from more kind of in inverted commas collectivist cultures. So, and uh, broadly speaking, Asian cultures, right? So these are, I, I grant you, these are very broad brush 
statements, but but the the they're based in in you know observation and and evidence that Asian cultures are more averse to to disagreement um, because they are much more focused culturally on uh, uh, relationships, whereas mm. in 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 the West there's a kind of focus on 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 opinions and and views and, and beliefs. Um, and so if you're if you're very focused on stay, keeping the relationship stable in in a conversation then yeah disagreement and conflict is seen as as a as a threat to that um but you know it varies within within the west as well i mean i think that the french for example are much more culturally comfortable with argument and disagreement than than the english perhaps in the americans too um and uh, i mean i know this from my own experience but but i i, I talked to to uh, somebody for the book about about french the french culture of disagreement and she's like yeah you know i know that in 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 britain and and in america you have this saying that you, you should never talk about politics or, or religion at the, at the dinner table and and for us in in france it's absolute nonsense right we wouldn't even think of saying that. It's the perfect place to have those discussions. In fact, we, you know, we sit down for lunch and everybody's, you know, kind of nice and polite for a couple of minutes as we take our first bites of the, of the meal, and then somebody just throws in a, a hand grenade, you know, about the, <laughs> the current political issue of the day, and we all kind of go for it. Um, and Maybe I should move to France. Yeah, right. It's and and the thing is. That's the power of, of, of a culture, whether it's a co- corporate culture or a national culture or just a culture in a, in a family, right? Every kind of group has their own culture. Is if it's the norm, then you don't get stressed about it. So that, that, that you know, those French friends around the table are not stressed about the fact they're all arguing because it's just like, it's just what they do. So you can change the, the norms um, to, to make disagreement a much less stressful and, and a more enjoyable activity. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I mean, and I think, <clears throat> I, I mean, Canadians are very bad at conflict and very bad at disagreeing. It's funny that you say that, you know, like France is more comfortable with conflict or I don't know if you would use the term better or not than um, people in the UK. But I've always felt like people in the UK by comparison to Canadians are very good and very comfortable at conflict, much more, co- much more comfortable with debate you know in canada people are so desperate to get along that we just don't (laughs) talk about anything ever i mean the politeness is like stifling here we can't really we don't have political debates hardly (laughs) and it can be stifling right politeness is i'm a fan of politeness i i'm not you know i'm not against politeness but bit much it can be a bit much and it can be it can be an obstacle to honesty and and truth telling and there is definitely a balance to to be struck there yeah i mean i think canadians are are not very invested in things like free speech and free expression for that reason because they i think a lot of canadians are more concerned with offending or with something being offensive or you know harmful words than they are with people speaking their their truths which again i i find stifling um in any case i i uh 
obviously want to talk about social media because social media conflicts are such a major part of our culture now, unfortunately. And I don't really think, I just think it's sort of inherent to the technology that these kinds of like debates and disagreements are not going to go well online is my opinion. What do you think? Um, sadly, I think that's that's largely true. I think there are things you can do to, to make it go better. Um, but uh, put it this way, structurally, uh, it, it kind of makes it, it makes it tougher, right? It makes it harder. So you see it as a challenge. Can I have good disagreements on, on Twitter or, or Facebook, whatever it is? Um, it, it's going to be harder than it is in person. Um, and, and I think the reason is that the, the, the sort of bandwidth of, of, the, of the connection that you have with somebody is much narrower than it is uh, face-to-face or even over uh, video or even over the phone, right? When you're, you're picking up lots of signals about each other, from the way that we use our voices, um, the way our you know face appears if we if we can see see the person, uh, our body language and so on, um, and when you have a kind of more broadband, kind of wider, richer relationship with someone, the disagreement itself does not seem so important, right? It's it's kind of put in perspective because you're like well subconsciously you know you're not kind of explicitly thinking this but you 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 think well okay well i have this relationship with this person might be a new relationship or whatever now that seems to be quite important right and that's kind of at the center of my consciousness and the disagreement is just kind of one thing that 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 we're handling on social media all that that context of the relationship is just kind of stripped away brutally um, until you've just got a few words in in, in a box, and uh, which expresses the the disagreement. So everything becomes about the disagreement, and that's kind of one of the reasons. That's one of the signs that a disagreement is going to go badly, is that the only thing that we have in common is the disagreement. We we can't see any. You know, we've got no kind of sense of our shared humanity, no no sense of our wider kind of perspective on life. We don't have any of that kind of shared stuff in common. All we've got in common is a few words about, you know, Trump or Biden in, in, in a box. And that becomes the entirety of our relationship. And that, mean, that means actually things get quite nasty and, and defensive much more, much more quickly because that becomes, that becomes a kind of personalised battle, um, which we, we just sort of naturally avoid when we're, when we have a, a, a you know an, a, an offline relationship, yeah, and even and yeah, that's def- that's exactly right. I mean, there's no context to any of these arguments or debates that we're having with strangers, people we know nothing about, people that we're passing judgment on based on this one comment of theirs on Facebook or whatever it is. But there's also the fact that even when it's when we're dealing with people that we know, even people we know quite well, um, debates or disagreements or conflicts online tend to go really badly. You know, even uh, like I have a policy of if there's like a difficult conversation to have or some kind of conflict, I try as best as I can 
to have the conversation in person or at least over the phone rather than over text, for example, because I just, through experience, have determined that it doesn't usually go very well. <laughs> um, why no, is that? And it's, it's the same thing. It all becomes kind of focused on on these, on words. Right. Um, actually, words are a really kind of like inadequate way to to conduct uh, a, a relationship. <laughs> I mean, we we they're, they're they're pretty good, right? But but actually, it's hard for a writer to digest that. But yeah. okay. <laughs> <laughs> but they don't they don't really. Your feelings are analog. Your feelings about each other are essentially analog, right? Uh, relationships are are at base analog, right? Language came quite a long time after we 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 started relating to to each other. Um, you think about your relationship you have with your your with animals, with your pet, whatever. It's it's still it's pr- still pretty rich. It's just that you don't yeah. you don't have language. Um, I mean, we could get, this is a kind of longer conversation, but 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 in a, in 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 social media on whatsapp or text or whatever it is um you just got these words and they just seem to kind of they 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 don't really capture anything about your your relationship and yeah i i mean having arguments with people over email people you know really well it just it's just horrible it becomes horrible it, it just it's just cold basically because you get you're getting none of the the instinctive kind of warmth you get from that you would in the the actual presence of of the person you're you're just seeing this fake substitute for for presence which is sort of good enough but it's actually a very thin read on on how they think and how they feel because often the words that we're saying and certainly the ones we're writing don't actually reflect properly how we feel but to the person on the other end it seems like it's 100 of the person it's like it's all i can see so it must be must be all of you it must be all of what you feel well, it's not. It's mm-hmm. just the words that I, you know, spat out by mistake. Yeah. Well, and I mean, it's tempting to, especially for somebody, again, who's a writer, like you are, I'm also a writer, to want to kind of spell things out very clearly because yes. that's how we're used to communicating. And so I've had to resist that that desire to send a, a long email or send like a novel over text. I'm not, yeah. I haven't always resisted. <laughs> no, me neither. I haven't been perfect oh, at this, oh, but gosh. I try yeah. really, really hard. Yeah. Over explaining everything, overwriting, <laughs> writing these long essays. And then at the end of it thinking, oh wow, I seem to say completely the wrong thing. <laughs> you know, I it thought just, about this so much and rewrote so many drafts. Yeah. And yet I made the situation worse. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I think in the book you wrote um, that that tone really is more important than content. Mm. Is that true? Yeah, the tone is, is the kind of the non-word, non-verbal part of the conversation. And tone is actually where you establish your your relationship right so so in any conversation there's the 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 content level and there's the relationship level the content is the thing that you are arguing about or talking about um it's the thing that you've verbalized but actually often the real action is happening downstairs or underground 
um, in in the relationship level where you're sending signals to each other about what you think about me, what you how you feel about me, and 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 vice versa. And when that relationship level and and that's you know tone is is a big part of that. And when that relationship level is going badly, when somebody's feeling disrespected. Um, or, or somebody feels like the other person's being hostile to them, the content uh, is going to go badly, right? The, 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 the above ground conversation is going to go really badly. So you, you have to get the tone right because otherwise you can't get into the substance. So some people, some people like to dismiss tone or, you know, civility or whatever it is. It's a superficial kind of nonsense. Let's get into the substance here. And they just got it completely the wrong way around. Um, you can't actually get into the substance until you've established a firm footing for uh, the, the the conversation, and that means a, a good relationship. Okay, well, I'll try to remember that. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, I mean, I did too much explaining there. Too many words. I, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I guess I sort of I suffer a little bit from that desire to just like say what you just say what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah but but i agree i mean you need it's warmth hard. in a conversation and i and i think you need eye contact and tone and yeah i think that the yeah lack even of tone though it can go badly but you know we're 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 at sea yeah yeah i wonder if was there anything particularly surprising that you found in when you were researching and working on this book was there something that really kind of shocked you that you didn't expect to to learn oh gosh um loads um and uh yeah and it's all it's all in there but but i i I think one of the kind of key things which i i wasn't quite prepared for when i went in was the role of emotion in in good disagreement and and good conversation, good thinking, and how important it is. Because I guess I'd I'd gone into it thinking like a lot of people when when I've seen debate and disagreement dis- discussed before, people talk about principles of good you know good disagreement, and they'll they'll quote Greek philosophers and so on. They often seem to have this approach, which is ah, oh, we just need to take this messy stuff of emotion out of the disagreement and just talk rationally. And then these, these, these arguments, these disagreements will go much better. It's usually men saying this, by the way. Um, and, and, <laughs> and now I think, A, that's completely unrealistic, because even if you're trying to be super rational and, and take it, you, you, you're still operating at some instinctive level, right? You, um, everything is, is emotional at some level. Um, and B, actually... The more emotional you, you, you let yourself, well, there's a limit to this, but if you let yourself be emotional, you will actually be better at thinking, right? Emotion mm. is, is a part of an important part of, of, of cognition. Often the, the, the feelings that you have when, when you're in an argument are driving you to do better thought and, and to, to articulate yourself better, to draw on more better reasons and, and, and more experiences. So I, I think in a, in a disagreement, it shouldn't be like this kind of, um, you know, disembodied kind of mind-to-mind um, discourse. It, we should bring out a whole kind of messy embodied selves to, to to the table, and 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 just bring the whole of ourselves to the table. It should be kind of a, a soulful disagreement at, at its best, um, rather than this kind of 
dry, slightly dull thing that I hear about it talked as is sometimes. Right. And that, that aspect of trying to build empathy, like, you know, trying to understand the other person, trying to like relate to where they're coming from, trying to actually genuinely hear them, which, which might be easier said than done, but I, I don't I don't really think so. Like I tend to think that if you actually sat down at a table with the person that you think you hate or that you have this unresolvable disagreement with, that's you know, you wouldn't end up in a screaming match. You probably would actually end up having a pretty reasonable conversation. You'd come out of it not hating one another and sort of maybe understanding one another a little bit better. Yeah, I, I certainly think that happens more often than people are prepared for. So so sometimes, you know, people will say, OK, yeah, but uh, so, some people are just not worth engaging with. Right. No, they're, they're just beyond the pale. You know, their, their views are just way off the, the reservation or whatever. Yes, that's true. But. There's, there's probably those people are much fewer than than you imagine like we we tend to i don't know why but we tend to kind of widen the scope of uh people with whom we don't think it's worth engaging with way too far um actually you know we expand we tend to expand it to anybody who even slightly disagrees with us <laughs> think well that person's got the wrong view therefore i'm just not going to talk to them um and and most of the or time or i'm going to cut them out of my life I'm going to cut them out of my life. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to banish them from from uh, from the world as far as I can. And most most of the time, you'll find that that even these people with these incredibly objectionable views are uh, actually have more more humanity than than perhaps you're recognizing, and are actually you know are more interesting and have something to 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 tell you. Yes, I totally agree. Um, I have one final question for you before I let you go, which is, do you think that Ringo is the worst of all the Beatles? No, I don't. <laughs> I don't. I don't. Okay, I well, think, I'm, I'm cutting gonna, you out. I think George is the worst of all the Beatles. And I love What? George. Yeah. Oh, my God. We, we, can, we need to... George, yeah. George was long my favorite. I've sort of switched back and forth. First, my favorite, like when I was a kid, obviously Paul was my favorite. And then when I was a teenager, John was my favorite. And then sort of in my 30s, George was my favorite. And now I think I've gone back to George again. But Ringo has never been my favorite. And oh, really? I think oh, all God. of his well, songs are so we do bad. Another, okay, we have another podcast about Ringo. Because... <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yeah, we'll have the we'll have the Ringo podcast because Ringo. I might just do another ten thousand word essay about Ringo in that case because yeah, R- Ringo is an incredible drummer and also um in, really important to the social glue of 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 the the Beatles. Right, they were all really um, opinionated, arrogant. To be honest, you know, Lennon, McCartney, and Harrison—they all thought the world of themselves, and they were right too. <laughs> but but they were pretty arrogant, you know, pushy guys. And then there's one guy in the group who's not like that at all. He's basically, you know, re- very relaxed with himself, and that's what kept the others together. You know, there's a great quote from from Mark Lewison, the biographer of the Beatles, one of the great biographers of the Beatles, and he was asked. Um, you know, wh- why do you think they, they split up? And he said, this is completely the wrong question. The, the question is, how did these 
four, actually three plus Ringo, incredibly headstrong, arrogant, talented people stay together for long enough to have a career and and be the Beatles and and and, and get that's the question. The mystery is how they stayed together, and I think Ringo yeah. uh, is is a big part of the answer to that. Okay, well, I mean, I'm not opposed <laughs> to being wrong, as I mentioned. <laughs> I'll cut. We'll, we'll have convinced. another conversation about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, your book is conflicted, and is it? It's out in the UK. I think it came out on February 23rd. Is that right? Yeah, it's out in the US as well now. It's, so okay. it's out in the in the in the UK and the US. Hopefully everywhere else in time, but at the moment, the, the, the UK and the US. Okay, awesome. It was really great to talk to you. I really enjoyed it, and I hope that we get the opportunity to do so again at some point. I enjoyed it too, Megan. Thank you very much. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. I'm Megan Murphy, host of The Same Drugs. Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode and are enjoying the other interviews and the content we're producing, please do consider becoming a patron. Just head over to patreon.com slash Megan Murphy and sign up. Five, ten, twenty-five bucks a month. It all helps. Thank you so much. We'll catch you next time on The Same Drugs with Megan Murphy.